Welcome listeners in podcast land. Whether your whole self is in, or your whole self is out, or whether you're beginning to wonder if maybe the hokey pokey really is what it's all about, this is the Beyondering Podcast, where we explore faith out of bounds. Welcome, listeners, to episode three in series two of Beyondering. There's a few bits and pieces happening. Book, line, and think of the Beyondering Book Club is underway. We've already got a great take-up of people who are engaging with Diana Butler Bass's book, Grounded. Jump on board the website to find out details and come along with us. It's not too late to travel with other Beyonderers through some wonderful material. Also throughout the year of 2017, monthly live events we're gathering together are offline community, which is a radical idea, I know, uh, to gather together physically, face-to-face for those Beyonderers who are in the Melbourne area. Uh, music, poetry, uh, panel conversation, interfaith events, uh, visiting different places that you might never have gone to before and uh, meeting some pretty fun, amazing people. In order to make Beyondering sustainable, we need your assistance. So for small donations of $3, $5 or $10 a month or even a one-off donation, you can help Beyondering continue to put out quality resources and run significant events that help other people engage in reflective faith practice. So if you like what Beyondering's doing, back us. Maybe not always all it's cracked up to be. Chased and ruled by economy. Running its pace drains my energy. What does it mean to be truly free in Western modernity? Been paying debt since I was 23. Life by math, much less like poetry. Visions of grand living on easy street. Tons of stuff, but most is cheap. Counting the cost. There's so much we've lost in building and paving. Bills we are paying, trees we are shaving. We aim high for the American dream. Sacrifice our health and our family. Work to own our own property and set up more boundaries. But you, you exude what it means to live happy. You overflow, overflow artistry. Your welcome radiates sincerity. These, these would be an unfair exchange for prosperity. What does it mean to be truly free? To live abundantly with generosity in the midst of modernity.
This week, the lens that we're going to explore is that of a researcher. Research, the organised and systematic investigation of something. It's that ability to find the threads amidst not just a one-off experience, but a whole collection of data. It's wanting to assess that experience in relation to a whole context. So if we think of the framing analogy of this season, of a number of blindfolded people sitting around an elephant, each touching a different part of the elephant, research in the elephant analogy is not merely being curious about the person next to us and what they might see. It's actually what causes you to document what everyone is seeing in a disciplined, intentional way, with our personal view suspended. It's about collating and collecting the views of others to determine threads and themes. This is Average Joe. Hello. Ah, Josephine. Hello. Joe lives in Australia. Ah, g'day. And she goes to church. In fact, Joe is the average church attending Australian. According to the most recent census data, of Australia's 23 million citizens, roughly 14 million describe themselves as Christian. Of those 14 million, three and a half million attend church monthly. and around 1.6 million attend weekly. <coughs> Still, this is the same amount as those who attend all AFL footy, rugby league, super rugby, and A-league soccer each month. So, for every 10 people in Australia, six Hi. Hello. 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 identify as Christian. However, of those six, two Hi. Um, hello. When given the option, say it's more about spirituality than Christianity. Of the remaining four, for whom it is about Christianity, only one. of those actively practices and attends church regularly. According to National Church Life Survey data, average church attendance in Australia has halved in the last four decades. Research from the US suggests nine churches close every day in America. In the UK, church attendance has now dropped to 5% of the total population less than half what it was 35 years ago. That same survey data tells us that Australian average Josephine G'day. is passionate about issues of justice and global poverty. Amen. However, for every three Australian Christians, two believe the church should campaign for global poverty relief and against injustice, but one in three No does not. Seriously? According to the data, when it comes to war, one in every three Christians do not agree that the church should be involved in peacemaking activities. No. Is that the same guy who didn't want to fight poverty? I'm sick of that, dude. Further afield, though, a study by the University of California in Berkeley shows that more than 70% of the world's population has never heard a dial tone. 
According to Privacy International, the average working Londoner is caught on CCTV more than 300 times per day. The National Science Foundation claims one-third of Americans believe aliens have landed on Earth. Millstone and Lang's Atlas of Food claims we eat around six to seven kilograms of food additives every the year. The average Japanese woman is expected to live to 84. According when to the 1995 survey, do something yeah. right. yeah. more 31% identify strong enough research from the US suggests that remaining churches are food every day. Only one. According to privacy practitioners, the average working woman, according to the data, when it comes to war, one in every three Christians do not agree. Less than half when of the I church should be involved in peace. So does research have a place in faith? Considering faith is so subjective and personal, it's mysterious and perhaps even in some ways beyond the rational, can research aid faith? Well, in order to test the theory, we're going to put on our research lenses with Diana Butler-Bass, an American author, speaker, an independent researcher and scholar, specialising in American religion and culture. Diana has written nine books, including her most recent book, Grounded, Finding God in the World, A Spiritual Revolution, which has won two notable religious awards. Grounded is also being featured in the Beyondering Book Club, Book, Line and Thinker, which you can join through our website now. We caught up with Diana Butler-Bass when she was with us in Australia for the Common Dreams Conference in Brisbane. Diana Butler-Bass, welcome to Beyondering. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. I love the name of this podcast. Do you? When I saw Beyondering, I went, oh my gosh, these guys are on my wavelength. <laughs> right. Oh, we wait, haven't even said anything. I'm already thinking, on but... a wavelength. It's a... <laughs> You, uh, your first book, well, sorry, the first book of yours I read, wasn't your first book, um, Christianity for the Rest of Us, was an exploration of churches and looking for vibrant churches and looking for where there was signs of life. And then what, what did you discover as you, as you researched? One of the things that is constant about my path as a writer, as a teacher, and, and as a scholar is that it's all very caught up in the living of my life. And so memoir and, and personal uh, autobiography are always part of what gets me to the questions that I'm looking at. So what got me to Christianity for the rest of us in the research of vital congregations, in the early 1990s, I was teaching at an evangelical Christian college in Santa Barbara, California. And so here I was in my first job, I was barely 30, and um, it was at the same college that I had gone to as an undergraduate. They called me back after I had my PhD and wanted me to teach theology and church history. So I arrive on campus and the very first day that I taught a class, a serious class, but it was my class. I walk in the classroom, I'm so excited. And all they knew is that there was going to be a new professor. So they just signed up for the doctrine class taught by the new professor. Nobody told them it was going to be a woman. And so I was the first ever woman at this college to teach a hard theological subject. And it was over the summer that the students had gotten the news that their doctrine professor was going to be a female. 
And I walk into this class, so here I am, I'm excited, I have my books, I have my, you know, my handwritten student list, and I'm going to call their names and the whole thing. And I look, the entire back row of the classroom were young men, and they had all turned their seats around and were facing the wall wow. in protest because they didn't believe that a woman should be teaching doctrine to a, wow. a man over the age of 13. Wow. Whoa. I know. It was like walking into the, I don't know, the 1950s, the 1930s, the 1830s. I don't know know what it was. And I just was like, what the heck am I going to do now? And um, I called roll. I mean, I I didn't know what else to do. And that was the beginning of my teaching career at this evangelical college. How How do you mark present? Someone who's chosen to turn their back on you. You know, I just started my lecture. I was there for four years. All kinds of horrible things happened. And um, in the process of those horrible things, the school decided that they didn't want me there. The whole argument became very public. So this is directly related to the question you ask. Because all of a sudden I found myself in evangelical community, which had meant so much to me as a young person, but now they didn't want me, and they were going to fire me. The only Christians in town who were supportive of me, and I, I initially I did not know this, but it was a group of liberal ministers who heard what was happening to me on the campus, and they were, kind of, they were horrified that the first woman professor in the religious studies department at the college up the hill was being treated so poorly. And so these ministers organized a a letter-writing campaign to the president of the college. They did not know me, and yet they were arguing for justice on my behalf simply by the stories they were hearing. And eventually I heard that they were doing this, and I was so appreciative. I I couldn't imagine that a group of strangers... Unitarians, mm-hmm. uh, UCC pastors, liberal Presbyterian women, people I, people who I had thought just a few years earlier were like, you know, going to hell heretics. Yeah. And these and here were the, they were on your side. Yeah. And, and, and they didn't even know me. Yeah. And yet they were standing up for me. And so I went to each one of the churches where um, I knew that someone had worked on my behalf or spoken on my behalf and introduced myself and met the ministers. As I went to their churches, I discovered that their churches were full of passion for God and uh, goodness and reaching out beyond the walls and really helping people who were hurting. And it was sort of everything that evangelicals said we were about you know, I discovered that sometimes people with right doctrine talk a good game, but then act really poorly. Yeah. And the people who don't necessarily have that same kind of doctrinal precision are busy doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, that kind of twisted around my uh, attention, you know, and, and said, mm-hmm. hey, what is really going on with these liberal churches? And so that whole set of events... Um, redirected my research into asking the question, well, what really makes for a great congregation? Mm. What did you discover? Well, in those churches, the the summary of all of that research, which went on for about four and a half years, was (laughs) so simple. Um, Churches that 
offer hospitality and pra practice hospitality and churches that practice meaningful theological reflection were churches that were vital. Mm -hmm. And there were other things too, those are not the only practices, but when I looked at the sort of the whole, I had a research pool eventually of 50 congregations in all different parts of the United States. I got a lot of frequent fire, fire miles. <laughs> and Australians can understand this, you know, you're flying, yeah. you fly all over the place. And um, those two things were common throughout the whole of the research pool. And when I talk about hospitality, I'm not talking about just, you know, tea and cookies kind of thing. Or it, it was a real self-conscious practice of opening up the life of community to strangers. And, and, and these congregations have thought about who is the stranger that's nearby and how are we to engage the stranger. Mm -hmm. And so, so that was common. And then the second thing was is taking this, the, the, the story seriously. Mm -hmm. So those were the two things. Hospitality and theological reflection. But then there were other things, discernment, prayer, um, practices of silence, um, practices of forgiveness, uh, practices of doing justice, practices of engaging beauty. Um, and those were, there was a cluster of 10 practices that was that were common across the whole pool, but those two practices were the strongest in every every Ooh. congregation. Did you expect that going out no. prior to research? No. No. Yeah. It was all a complete surprise to me. Interesting. Ooh. Why was it a key tenet? Why was it transformative for these congregations, the act of hospitality? Well, one of the consistent themes, I, I, I think, at least in the last four books I've written, and it might even stretch back further than that, is the practice of hospitality. The place where it comes out in a really strong manner is in a book I wrote called The People's History of Christianity. And there I looked at practices that emerged in the five different periods of church history as sort of the leading practices. And when you look at the early church, hospitality mm. is one of the markers of the mm. early church. As a matter of fact, in early Christianity, People could have cared less what you believed about Jesus. Um, you know, as long as you loved Jesus and you were involved in the Jesus story, you mm -hmm. know, that was, that was all they needed to know. There was no doctrinal sort of mm -hmm. purity about what you thought about that Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, so back in those years, the test of Christianity was whether or not you offered hospitality to strangers. And if you did not offer hospitality to strangers, that was the thing that your fellow believers mm -hmm would call you on mm. and and it was that serious for them mm. yeah and so anyone who was a wayfarer a stranger a person who was homeless or had you know fled from jail or whatever but if that person wandered by the community's door or the doors of individuals who were members of the community and needed shelter and food you gave it. Mm. And there are even some stories from very early monastic communities. One of them I love. There was a group of travelers going through the Egyptian desert, and um, they went, they passed by a monastery. I, th I think this was probably about the year 300. And the monks ran out of the monastery and met the travelers in the road mm -hmm. with towels to clean the travelers with milk and honey and bread and then ushered the travelers into the monastery when i first read that i cried mm -hmm. because i 
everybody thinks about hospitality as you sit inside your building, and if anybody dares enter the door, will you give them, you know, you say, here's a little brochure about our church. Here's our wheat cordial and our Leamington biscuits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or an offering card. Yeah. Or an offering <laughs> card, yeah, exactly. You know, sign up for membership. <laughs> Would you teach Sunday school? Yeah. And yet... Um, in the early church, the action was the opposite, mm-hmm. is that simply the stranger walks by your door and you run out and you meet those people in mm-hmm. the street mm-hmm. and then you take them to shelter. I'm Faith. And I'm Five. Any pigs like peace? The Bible is really heavy. I once saw a Christmas tree. made of love. If above the clouds is space and more space and planets and stars and the sun, then where's God? Faith, my daughter, asked that same question when she was four or five as well. And you know what was the most interesting thing is she got a whole lot of answers. And her dad, who grew up in one kind of church, said, well, God is in heaven. So... And I grew up in a different kind of church, and we had a different answer to, to the question. God is in your heart. And then my daughter, she didn't like either of those questions, answers, that God was in heaven or that God was in our heart. So she kept asking people, and people gave her all kinds of answers, that God was in the trees or in the river that was running by our house, um, that God was not here, that, that God had created us, but that now we live in a universe where we have to be like God to one another, that we have to have that kind of love for one another. God is very far away, but left it in our hands. So there are a lot of people who are trying to answer that question. Right now, I think the best answer is simply that God is with us. So, I mean, Faith's question, just like your daughter's question, is is a massive one. That the the yeah. way we've talked about God for ages doesn't work. We've jumped in a rocket and gone up to the moon and found God's not there. We have an understanding right. of the universe that can't match and marry with how we used to think and talk about God. So, how do we now talk about God? Yeah. Well, gosh. Um, I think that a few years ago, I started notice it, noticing that my own training in theology and my own growing up in church had um, shaped me to be able to answer the question, who is God? Or maybe what is God? Um, But I noticed that nobody was asking me that question. Mm -hmm. And the question instead that people I knew, you know, in my life, or, you know, were just sort of acquaintances, were asking me questions about where is God? And those would be questions like, um, you know, my my best friend who is only 32 has cancer and she's going to die in six months. Mm. And I just can't figure out where God is in the midst of all this. Or people after the terrorist attacks, 9-11. Mm. That was a common question. Mm. Where Where is God? Mm. Where is God when you have people who are crazy enough to, in the name of God, run airplanes into buildings and just kill 4,000 people in a second for fun, apparently. You know, where is God? And so the, the day that uh, that young man 
uh, walked into a classroom in Sandy Hook, Connecticut, and uh, was shot, or Newtown, Connecticut, Sandy Hook Elementary School, and shot 22, 23 people, 20 of whom were six-year-olds. And <sighs> that was all you heard on the news. Mm -hmm. People were literally on the news asking the question, where is God? Nobody was asking, who is God? Yeah. And nobody was even asking, why did God let this happen? Mm. People were saying, where? Mm. And that, when I noticed that, that was the, that my historical, I mean, I was, I was, I was in deep pain, but, um, but my historical sort of um, light went off. And I thought, that's really weird. Because I think that in previous times, in American history, when something tragic happened, people didn't ask that question. Really? So I actually went back and I looked mm. at sort of big tragic events, the sinking of the Titanic, the beginning of the bombing of Pearl Harbor, mm. um, the uh, beginning of the Civil War. I, and so I just went back and I looked at sermons and sort of public uh, pronouncements that seemed to be related to questions that people had. And I noticed that in in history, our ancestors asked, typically would ask the question, why did God let this happen? Mm. Or alternately, another sort of version of that question was, what is God asking of us mm. as, a, as it relates to this thing? Or what is God trying to teach us yeah. because of these things? Mm -hmm. They weren't even asking the question, who is God? Because they mm. kind of felt that they knew who mm -hmm. God was. Mm -hmm. But people don't ask that anymore. Mm -hmm. But most people are just saying, where is God? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was the moment that sort of the light went off for me. And I realized that the culture um, had changed so radically that, and it was coming out of this question. And I thought, well, there you have it, you know? There's a theological question that's hanging right in front mm -hmm. of most of the people in Western culture who, you know, and most most of the people who care still about these things mm -hmm. in Western culture, and very few people are answering it. Mm -hmm. And instead, we're offering people answers to questions that people don't care about any yeah. longer. Yeah. So the questions we ask reveal what what it is we don't know, but they also reveal the assumptions that we feel certain about. Yeah, and the questions, and I'm always now thinking about how do the questions that seem to be framed in churches, you know, in the in liturgies and traditions right. and the way that religious people talk, how do those questions relate to the questions that you hear in the world? Yeah. And oftentimes they're two entirely different sets of questions. Yeah. It means we're talking to ourselves about things that we only care about if we're mm. in churches. But it also means that our congregations are leading double lives. Like this, mm -hmm. this, this life that's lived in, in these four walls when we gather together and then there's something completely different being lived when we're members of the community. I don't see that in the Bible. I don't see yeah. that in the gospel stories about Jesus. It appears that Jesus was able to walk into a world of questions. And when people ask him questions, he would, <laughs> he would take those questions as a launching point. I can't think of any time when he ever ridiculed the questions. I mean, there were a couple times. But usually what he would do would take the question and then circle that question around in such a way that deepened the question and then told a story about the God that he knew. And so 
I, I just think about that all the time. It's, you know, instead of just saying to people, well, that's the wrong question, you know, it's like, wow, that's a really interesting question. Yeah. Mm. Where is God? Mm. Where is God? I feel that pain. I know that that is a hard question to answer. And so I've actually started asking people this question, you know, just friends, you know, where do you meet God? And what are you, what are you hearing as you ask that question? Oh, uh, I would say the dominant answer is people meeting God in nature. Um, but then people do talk also as well, uh, I think as well about, you know, I guess you say here in Australia, uh, meeting God with their mates, you know, (laughs) and going down to the pub or whatever and, and, uh, with, in friendship and, camaraderie and doing Mm. things with others and oftentimes doing things for others Mm. but it's such a massive shift i've heard you talk a lot about an elevator theology i actually love this analogy you can have so much fun with this um (laughs) is that the way we began to believe that god was in the sky uh, i think it was very primal you know probably some who knows who it was some ancient ancestor looked up and there was the milky way and they went, God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they just lifted their eyes and went, God. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's God. Um, and uh, so we got this idea, you know, that God was up and out, you know. And not to mention when the rain that sustains your yeah, crops and you down yeah. from heaven and all that kind of stuff. And so we, so somewhere along the line, religion definitely developed in this sort of vertical uh, capacity. And not all religions, but, but many. And, uh, and so that was always kind of there, but, but that was reflected in the fact that, um, many ancient people also had structured the world in a particular way. And so the, the most sort of conventional ancient, what we call cosmology worldview was that, that we live inside of a three-tiered universe where there is heaven, where God, the angels, or the gods, live and then there's what is under our feet which is death and decay and the devil and scary darkness and all those sorts of things and then here in the middle is earth and what we knew about life here is that it's fragile and short and all of those things and so we thought about this because human beings do think about these things and we thought well maybe this isn't all there is and maybe and we actually did see people go down we saw bodies decay into the earth and so we thought well that's kind of scary you know but maybe there's a different option you know maybe maybe the gods would like us back you know after this very short life and maybe if we do good or if we please the gods that instead of just going down and becoming nothing disappearing into the earth maybe something rises and that we go to live in the stars with god and so this there it's some that's that's how religion started and so that was the conception and you can see there what the the fundamental religion religious problem was is that how do you escape here and go to the good place and not the bad place? And that means you have to have a mediating structure Mm. to help you get to the good thing Mm. and to avoid the bad thing. And so religions developed, many of them again, not all of them, but many religions developed like I call the holy elevator. Mm. And that way the gods or God sent down stuff on the elevator about how you could be saved 
uh, they would send down sacraments. They would send sacred down texts. sacred texts, mm. um, directions for life, you know, all kinds of different things. And Christianity just sort of incorporated this whole vertical structure and this whole idea of a mediating uh, thing uh, into the church. And, and so not only do you need a holy elevator, but whatever comes down on the elevator is sac sacred and mm -hmm. You know, it just came from God. Mm -hmm. So it's probably on fire, you know, <laughs> you know or something. Need special gloves to hold it. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. right. You need gloves. Yeah. And so so what we created was a class of special... Bellhops and... Well, I call them the holy elevator operators. Yeah. yeah. Who went to sort of holy elevator operator school <laughs> <laughs> to learn how to handle whatever came out. And, and so... All the people would stand behind the elevator operator. The elevator would come down. The elevator operator mm. would reach in with the special gloves mm. and pull out the thing and then turn around to the people and say, take, eat, do this in remembrance of me, or this is the word of God proclaimed, or, oh my gosh, look at it. There's nothing we can do. It's just grace. <laughs> you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> But it's here, you know, so it saves us. And so, um, so whatever it was, then the people would respond, yes, we'll do that. You know, we'll eat that's that. That's what you say, yeah, you know, we right. need to do to. Yeah. Right. We'll, we'll eat that. We'll obey those rules. We'll listen to those words. And then if we did that, uh, whatever the demand or the, the gift, receive the gift or whatever it was, we did that well. Um, then after we died, the holy elevator operator would put us in the elevator mm. and press the up button. Mm. Yeah. Crap, I pressed the down button. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Wrong place. <laughs> and so... Uh, Women's uh, shoes and white goods are down there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and, and I, you know, like liberal, pro liberal Protestantism, mm. which is my tradition, um, you know, somewhere about 100 years ago, we put tape over the down button. Right. But we kept the down button yeah. in case of emergencies. I always think that, you know, so after World War II, you rip the tape off and you send Hitler down. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's, it's covered with that in, in, in the case of emergency, break glass. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So the, the down button is still in there for the really bad people, but mostly the tape is And to threaten the kids with. Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, people yeah. do that. And yeah. I mean, we yeah. laugh about it, but that not that yeah. the tragedy of it yeah. all? Mm, yeah. And, and the obvious implications is just where God is. So God is right. out above, not right. here. Distinct and, from, separate to. Yeah, and mediated by something else. Right. To everything you talked about before of mm -hmm. immediate experience, accessible right. to all. There is no elevator, but actually we there stop. There's no special to, class of mediator. Yeah, we right. don't need to look up. We look. Right. Well, see, that's the, that's the whole problem right now is that other than certain religious groups, the rest of the world does not structure the universe yes. according to a three-tiered cosmology. Mm. Yes. Mm. And the whole cosmology, the whole way we understand the world now is we understand the world as a, a cosmic horizon, a quantum horizon, mm. and that we live inside of time and space, and that we live in this sort of expanding spatial quantum reality. And there's no up or down. It's not vertical. Yeah. There's no vertical. Yeah. It loops back on itself and repeats. And, and it's a huge, amazing, yeah. remarkable mystery yeah. that our kids are learning about in fifth grade science class. Mm, that's it. 
And so then they go to church, and what they're being offered is a language mm. of a God up in heaven that sits on top of an elevator mm. shaft. Mm. Mm. Which even if, it, even if it is only metaphorical, for those who, who can even come to that, it's still an inappropriate metaphor right. because it's dealing with an ancient worldview. Right. Mm. Metaphors and analogies only work if they make sense mm. in the context of a worldview. Mm. And so right now we're still functioning even if we don't literally believe in the elevator, even if the elevator is, as you just said, only a metaphor, it's a metaphor that can't function mm. because there's no cosmological story mm. left in our culture that it relates to. Mm. And so that is what, and I have heard very few people say that, but everybody always says, what's going wrong with the church? And people say, oh, it's, you know, we don't have cool enough music to attract millennials <laughs> or, you know, we, we, we need to take the pews out and put mm. in sofas or whatever it is. Yeah. But yeah. I think what it is, is we're using metaphors and stories that have no resonance in a completely different cultural setting. But what I can understand as a better analogy, um, for a, the cosmology that I embrace now is something I use every day, and that is the web. Mm. You know, if, I, if there is one structure of the universe that I understand now intuitively, constantly, and is always a lived reality of my life, it's a web. Mm. And that's because of the internet. Mm. That's become, mm. I think, the primary sort of experience we have of connection mm. that we have of one another that we have of um how this non-vertical mm. reality exists mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so to think about a web of meaning or a web of life that's a beautiful image mm. and mm. it's very self it's very understandable. Yeah, uh, faith would understand that. And that's it. It's accessible. And, it's accessible yeah. to a five-year-old. Mm. It's accessible to me. It's lived, so we practice it all the time. Mm. And it's also beautiful because it, it's it exists in nature, so we can see it. There's poetry about it. We we have Charlotte's Web, so we have children's <laughs> stories about it, mm. um, and we we get it, and and so. I, I love that, and I think that um, it, it, that takes me a little bit further. I think as adults, then, you can play with that. And I, I think about the a kind of a spiritual ecosystem um, that we live in. And, and so the web sort of s expands my imagination, and I think about the physical and spiritual, geologic, historical ecosystem mm. in which my life, your life, resides and and so now what we have then are all these organic kinds of of real of, of stories that can emerge mm -hmm. that help us to understand um who god who god is where god is um who we are what kind of meaning there is for our life how we are to act in the world and so now the question of god becomes different. See, if we think God is in the clouds, well, then the elevator is necessary and all of that kind of stuff. But where is God if it's a web? Mm. Yeah. Where is God if it's an ecosystem? Mm. Well, what if God is the, the thread mm. of the web? Mm. So God is both weaver and the connective threads. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
And what if God's web is built as we move towards and away from each other? You know, what if it's actually right. being built as we... Because I connect with you, I form a new connection on the web. What mm-hmm. happens to the web? You know, that's... That, yeah. Right. The, the thing I love about that analogy is that, yeah, talking about our interaction with the world wide web, which is a wholly human in, invention, and yet it still brings us into contact or forces us to face mystery because... Have you ever had the conversation where you tried to explain maybe to an older person, yeah, but where is that web page located? When I turn my computer off, where does it go? Mm-hmm. And, and like, I, I, I can't explain that. It's a wholly human invention and yet I can't fully explain how the World Wide Web works and where it goes when I turn my computer off. You know, <laughs> what does it mean that my files are stored in the cloud? You know? <laughs> And so even with this analogy, we're forced to accept that there is mystery and there is the inexplicable and there is the limits of our language around what God, who God is, where God is, those deep questions. Mm -hmm. And you've been coming more into um, perhaps an appreciation of mysticism. Mm -hmm. Where does that sit and and, and what's your, where have you been discovering that? How have you been seeing an appreciation of mysticism serve people's expression and exploration of faith and what do you see as mysticism mm. oh I, that's a that's a those are great questions um first of all i don't think that mysticism is in the same way i don't think priesthood is this so in the old structure in the elevator structure only special people could handle the stuff that came out of the elevator mm. and those were priests and bishops mostly um with gloves uh, yeah oh yeah wearing gloves absolutely special clothes to protect them from the 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 heat and the fire (laughs) um but there was another class of special people Mm. and those were the mystics and the mystics were people who could somehow see what was at the top of the elevator Mm -hmm. or below the elevator and what us plebs can't see right and what regular people could not see and so these were the the mystics were the people who had some sort of insight to what was beyond Mm -hmm. the visible part of what's here in earth and so um, the church especially in the middle ages really feared that because what if a mystic you know julian of norwich sitting in a closet in a church somewhere in england in the 1300s what if she saw a god that said something to the effect of um in order to be saved you don't need to pay attention to the guys with the elevator Mm -hmm. instead i simply want you to be lost in love you know so that's really dangerous Mm -hmm. because the mystics could contradict the elevator guys at any moment and the elevator elevator guys always knew that yeah. um, you, so you could end up with things like women teaching it at bible colleges oh yeah, yeah. well yeah oh, that's <laughs> right women teaching at evangelical colleges yeah. in american history one of the best stories is ann hutchison who was a puritan woman who challenged the authorities in boston in the 1600s mm. um because she said she had a direct revelation of God. Mm -hmm. And she began having Bible studies in her own living room. Uh, They banished Mm -hmm. her to Rhode Island where she died. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, but that's what mystics do. Mm -hmm. Mystics challenge the elevator authorities Mm -hmm. very often. And so the elevator authorities set up all these sort of rules about who could be counted as a mystic. And so the only acceptable mystics were the same, were the mystics who saw 
What? Oh, we yeah. see. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. The well kind played. of the kind of God yeah. who would send stuff down in an elevator. <laughs> yeah. And all the other mystics, they got burned at the stake. Yeah. Um, and so there was this sort of strict control on mysticism and and approval structures. Now, if the elevator's gone, I think that mysticism is just a capacity of seeing. And that it's open. Do you see the this web? Do you see how beautiful it is? Do you mm -hmm. see how holy it is? Do you see these threads that hold us together? Mm -hmm. Do you sense the the wonder of it all? So that mystics. it still exists when mm -hmm. you turn the computer off. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't even have to visibly have it on a screen for the web to be functioning, yeah. to web to do what the web mm -hmm. does. Yeah. Uh, do you see, you know, if you use the natural analogy, do you see the the dew hanging mm. off of the threads? Mm -hmm. Do you see? Mm. And so I think that while mysticism is open for everyone and that capacity to see is just part of the human calling, um, that there's also another calling, and that is for communities to say, what is good and what is tender and how we should treat one another and that our religious traditions that we inherited from the past it's not about putting stuff in elevators but instead it's about trying to figure out the wisdom of those ancient stories that help to keep us that help to make sure that our vision is clear hmm. and so that if we in our mystic site see some you know oh god called me to burn jews in ovens then there's a then there's a wisdom that stands there and says, you're probably not seeing that. Yes. There's something that's cleaning the lens that's constantly. Right. Yeah. That's, that's right. Is that there needs to be corrective lenses mm -hmm. within the ecosystem mm -hmm. in which we live. Because we don't always see what we think we see. Perception can no. be fooled. Mm -hmm. And so while I think we're all mystics, I do also think that there are these sorts of nodes, what I would call sorts of nodes of knowledge and relationship and wisdom that are those kinds of lenses mm. and that they are and that's needed mm. to make sure that we're building out this this sacred structure or living in this sacred stu structure in such a way that is life-giving non-violent honoring others and and fruitful mm. in terms of caring for the earth and all the things that the web really needs to do and I think that our grandchildren will get it so much easier than we do. But it's our job to help that trajectory unfold for them at this time of change. And that's mm. I, I feel like that's what my writing and my storytelling is all about. Mm. Just sort of taking people over a bridge and saying, uh, this is the new this is the new side, this is the new <laughs> land. Um Let's make a home here. So, Diana Butler Bass, thank you so much for your time and thank you for coming beyondering. Thank you. So, if you're liking what you're hearing and enjoying the journey with Beyondering, we'll help keep this thing on the air and become a Beyonder backer through our website, even for as little as $3 a month. And a huge thank you to those who've already contributed. Also at our website, beyondering.com.au, you can join Book, Line and Thinker, the Beyondering Book Club. It's not too late if you'd like to join us for a year-long journey exploring a number of different books, 
videos, audio seminars and online community where we explore the themes that are raised. You'll also find information about our monthly events, including an upcoming screening of a climate change documentary, as well as an interfaith forum. But in the next episode of the Beyond Ring podcast, we'll be interviewing friend of the show, Robin Myers. It's strange to me that the essential uh, object of faith is to be selfless, is to be less selfish. But then we design these faith systems which seem like transactions that are very selfish. I believe a certain thing, I'll get a certain reward, including the ultimate you know, post-mortem reward. I, I believe the right things and I'll, and I'll go to heaven. Well, if, if faith is really about emptying yourself and being less selfish and more tuned in, more empathic and all of that, then we've created a system that works against itself. Who's an American pastor, peace activist, social justice professor, and author of seven books on progressive Christianity. So, friends, thanks for coming, Beyondering. Beyondering was established with the support of the Progressive Christian Network of Victoria and Common Dreams. The podcast is edited and produced by Shaz Mullins and relies on the wisdom and coaching of Andy Bruff. To join the mailing list or to find out more information on the podcast, monthly Beyondering live events, or Bookline and Thinker, the Beyondering Book Club, go to www.beyondering.com.au. We have the Aruga. <laughs> At least now we have the, the final sound effect for the show. <laughs>